Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, John Torres here, and I'm excited to bring you this bonus Murder on the Space Coast update episode on the case of Gary Bennett. If you remember, Gary was the subject of Season 1 of our Murder on the Space Coast podcast, and he is now in his 36th year in prison for the murder of Helen Nardi, a murder we don't believe he committed. If you're not familiar with the case, I encourage you to go back and listen to the six-episode season. Trust me, you will be shaking your head and maybe your fist when you're done. But to keep things moving along now, I'll provide a very brief Cliff Notes version. Gary Bennett was arrested in 1983 and convicted in 1984 of murdering his neighbor, 55-year-old Helen Nardi. She was brutally stabbed. Stabbed 26 times by three weapons. A Coca-Cola bottle was smashed into her head. She was found nude and covered by a sheet on the floor of her bedroom. That's a horrific way for anyone to die. But Helen wasn't the most sympathetic victim. Two of her children were taken away by the state when it was discovered that she had been pimping them out sexually to landlords as payment for rent. The state allowed Helen's oldest daughter, Mary, to remain because Mary married a man by the name of Kermit Parkins, who was 53 at the time, 10 years older than Mary's mother, and 37 years older than Mary, who was only 16. At the time of her murder, Helen was involved in a sexual relationship with Kermit Parkins as well. I said it in season one, and it's worth repeating. You just can't make this up. Long story short, when Helen was found murdered, there was pre-ejaculate fluid in her mouth and vagina. There were also two pubic hairs found on the scene and several sets of fingerprints in her bedroom that were never identified. Gary knew Helen and had been in her home before. He said he helped her carry groceries in about a week earlier. A partial palm print belonging to Gary was found in Helen's trailer. Now his print was oddly close to the floor and its placement seemed suspicious to police. But Gary passed a polygraph test and he volunteered for a rape kit test that came back showing no match to him. Still, Gary was the number one suspect for police, although it's hard to see how Mary or Kermit didn't come into the picture as suspects. Anyway, while being questioned by police, Gary asked for a lawyer but they continued questioning him for 12 hours. So how did the state build its case? Well, they brought in fraudulent dog handler John Preston to do his junk science voodoo on certain evidence in the case he said linked back to Gary. They also found two jailhouse informants to say that Gary confessed. Lastly, an incompetent lawyer was assigned to Gary's case, a lawyer who never brought up Helen's sex life, nor raised questions about two other possible suspects, Kermit Parkins and his wife Mary. Gary was offered seven years in a plea deal, but he rejected it outright. Then the state goes all the way and seeks the death penalty. Gary was found guilty after a sham of a three-day trial, including jury selection. But his life was spared as the judge sentenced him to life in prison. The prosecutor was Dean Moxley, who then became a judge and is now retired. If you remember, Prosecutor Moxley was involved in numerous cases with the dog handler, 
including three innocent men who spent nearly 60 years combined in prison. There is truly so much more to the story and I highly recommend you go back and you listen to season one. Anyway, since season one aired, we've been contacted by several people looking to help Gary, including an Orlando congressman, a state rep, and a retired real estate lawyer. They explored avenues to get Gary released. The retired lawyer even tried working on legislation that could help Gary. He also encouraged people to write Gary letters in prison so he would know that he wasn't forgotten. But it wasn't until May 2020 that I really began to believe Gary's bad luck just might be changing. I was invited to present my reporting on Gary to the law firm of Funk, Sasha, and Diamond in Melbourne. They're arguably one of the top criminal law firms in the county and who I'd turn to if I was in deep trouble. I figured it was worth a shot. Gary's getting older. He turned 62 on June 11th and he's seemingly out of options. No more. Here's attorney Kepler Funk. Well, I mean, the three of us have been kicking it around and um, what we want to do is we want to go forward. And so, yeah, happy to do so. The next step for us is to talk with Gary, of course. I had sensed a little uncertainty on their part when I was filling them in on Gary's case. So I asked Funk what the tipping point was. Why exactly are they taking the case? You know, just speaking for Al and Keith and me, we're all on the same page. We just keep coming back to, there's no question in my mind that this guy just did not receive a fair trial. He didn't receive a fair trial and that's what's motivating us to go forward. Ah, the trial. I teased a little bit to it earlier, but it really was something. I mean, I've seen jury selection in murder cases take a full week in some cases. For them to finish jury selection in the morning and start the trial that afternoon is really unheard of. Then you had a judge speeding things along because of a pending vacation. You had a court-appointed lawyer, Lawrence Letas, who offered Gary almost no defense. He never brought up the crazy sexual stuff in this family, and he never even called a fingerprint expert on Gary's behalf. But worst of all had to be fraudulent dog handler John Preston, who said his dog could pick up Gary's scent on the murder weapons during a quote-unquote scent lineup. Prosecutor Dean Moxley even equated Preston's evidence as the equivalent of a fingerprint on a murder weapon. Now, Preston was already being investigated as a fraud when he worked on this case. Eventually, he was totally discredited in Arizona, and cases he worked there were thrown out. The whole dog stuff is what really rankled attorney Keith Sasha. He could barely contain his emotion when he was talking about why they're taking the case. In, in my mind, it's disgusting. The trial that he had is disgusting. It, it, it's clearly not a fair trial to introduce, uh, allow the introduction of testimony uh, of that type of evidence, which is a sham um, and has proven to be a sham, uh, is, is clearly not a fair trial. Kepler Funk echoed those remarks and said the jury should never have been exposed to that type of junk science evidence. We just can't get out of our head that the jury considered this to be expert testimony. A jury should never consider junk science in coming to its conclusion. And so there's, and again, through no fault of those jurors, right? It's not their job to be the gatekeeper of the evidence they hear. That's frankly the judge's job. You know, if the government or even the defense, as an example, brings forth junk science, it's incumbent upon each other side to object to it. But in the end, 
the court is the gatekeeper of evidence that should be reliable, right? Doesn't mean believable, reliable is different in the scientific setting so that the jury can properly consider it. So there was a bunch of failures that happened when this jury, through no fault of their own, considered junk science and coming to a verdict where a guy's life is on the line, for goodness sake. The last time I spoke with Gary in person was in 2018, and he was grasping at straws trying to come up with a way to prove he was not the killer. I want the truth to be told. I have done everything in my power. I have taken a lie detector test. I have taken a rape kit test. I have tried to take a DNA test, but they destroyed the evidence, so I couldn't take the DNA test. Uh, I have. I will do anything in my power to uh, prove my innocence. I didn't have anything to do with the crime in the first place. I have done everything in my power, and I do mean everything, to prove my innocence, and they will not accept the findings. They know damn well that when I took the lie detector test by the grand, the, the, the state's own expert, he said, in no way did this man try to deceive me. So they know damn well I passed that. I took a rape kit test. Nothing matched. So they said, oh, well, it's inconclusive because it doesn't prove guilt. But they never told any of this to the jury. And for the state to keep saying, oh, well, the jury, it wouldn't have made a difference to the jury. How can you say that? I found it interesting when he asked me if I could put together a live polygraph and include him, Dean Moxley, and even current state attorney Phil Archer. There's one thing that I didn't want to say, and uh, it, I don't know whether you will agree to it or whether your editor will agree to it or whatever, but I still want it known that uh, I would like to do a podcast again, and this time I would like to have an expert, polygraph expert from the FBI who can give me a the true serum and ask me all the questions. Did you commit this crime? Do you know who did? And all those questions. And then after I pass the test, which I know I will because I'm not guilty, then I would like Dean Mosley and Phil Archer to take the same test on a podcast. And did you know that this man uh, it was innocent? Did you know that John Preston was a phony? Do you know now? And I would like them to, and I'm sure that they would say, oh, we're not obligated. And that would prove everything I say is true. And I would be more than happy to do that on an open podcast so that there's no way that they could come up with excuses. There seems to have been a win-at-all-cost attitude here in Brevard County at the state attorney's office that, in my opinion, really sullies the reputation. I think it was in season two when I did some research and I found that just about every single prosecutor's office I found listed seeking justice as one of its core objectives, or even in the motto or slogan of the office. Yet finding prosecutors willing to admit a mistake or even the willingness to look into a case proves near impossible. It's not fantasy football. It shouldn't be a win or else attitude. Yet I've spoken with prosecutors and former prosecutors who said that there was intense pressure on them to win cases. That's why I was so happy to hear this from the law firm's third partner, former prosecutor Alan Diamond. What I tried to do as a prosecutor when I was doing that was make sure that justice was served. It didn't always mean necessarily 
you know, getting a guilty conviction. It meant getting to the facts and making sure that the, the victims were, were taken care of, but that justice was served. And I, I have no confidence in this verdict based on what I saw. The, the evidence that the jury considered should not have been put in front of them, and I don't know what effect it had on them. Uh, and it's just not right. And I don't feel that justice was done. So what happens next? Well, all three lawyers are meeting with Gary in late June. They will continue to investigate the case, the record, the transcripts, the evidence, etc., and then try to find a way to get the case back into court. That's going to be the hard part. You see, because Gary's case stalled at the 5th District Court of Appeals when they denied his last motion without offering an opinion. Normally, that means there are no other avenues to appeal. That's why Funk says he's making Gary no promises except to try his best to correct an old injustice. He knows it's going to be one of the most challenging cases his firm has ever worked. We relish it. We're looking forward to it. We're excited to do it. We don't come in moping. We come in excited. That, and that excitement is always the injustice that Gary Bennett's been suffering under. Whenever we think a guy didn't have a fair trial, you shouldn't, we should never quit. Why would you ever quit until that injustice is, has been remedied? You'll have to forgive Gary if he's not ready to celebrate. He knows that the state will fight with everything it has to keep him locked up. I believe, and I mean, I truly believe, in my mind, that if this, they came up with some way to bring the dead back to life, and they were able to bring Helen Nardi back to life, and she said, no, he's not the one to kill me, Phil Archer and Dean Mosley would call her either a liar or say she was in denial. I truly believe that. Thank you for listening. This has been a special Murder on the Space Coast Season 1 update. If you like what we do, please give the podcast a five-star rating on whatever app you're using, and please consider a digital subscription to Florida Today. It is super cheap, believe me. And your subscription directly supports journalism like this. Go to floridatoday.com backslash subscribe. Thanks for listening, and you can count on me keeping you updated on this case and all others featured on Murder on the Space Coast. Brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.